walk down memory lane this week, 50 years after Wales launched the golden era of the 70s with a Grand Slam in 1971. Welcome to the Welsh Rugby Union podcast. Fifty years on and a chance to relive some great memories of the 1971 Grand Slam, first of three in the 70s, but also providing the heartbeat for the successful Lions tours of 1971 and 1974. Flanker John Taylor was one of the key players, of course. He spoke to Rob Cole and started by discussing the comparison with this season's Six Nations when Wales again went to Paris for the final game, chasing a Grand Slam. Terrific game, and I thought... Wales did really well to get to where they were. We know how tough it is to win a Grand Slam in Paris, France in the spring, <laughs> and all of that. And a good French side, a very good French side, praying that we'd hold on and do it. But I did feel we were under the cosh, really, the last 15. So can you believe that it's 50 years ago that you won your Grand Slam in, in 1971? <laughs> it's uh, it is amazing. I mean, when you think so much has happened since then in terms of you know just grounds and things. We played at the Stade Cologne, the old stadium. Then we went to uh, the Parc des Princes before they went to the Stade de France. Yeah, that for me was a very very special occasion. Probably one of my three favourite games of all time. Let's start with you. I mean, your first Five Nations game was uh, in Scotland, I believe, in, in 1967. Yep, absolutely. Um, again, real time of change. Selectors had decided they were going to revamp the Welsh side completely. Hayden Morgan had been the number seven for a substantial time. Good, good player. And they left him out completely. They did those sorts of things. They were, yeah. they, you know, it wasn't like, well, we're, we're going to read the riot act and say you've got to prove that you're still worth it. I mean, they, they just left him out completely. Funniest thing I remember about it was I actually played with three different scrum halves in my first three games for Wales. Billy Hullin, then Alan Lewis came back, and then Gareth. And I never played with another scrum half for the rest of my career. No, there wasn't <laughs> much need for change after that, no. But the reason I took you back to 67 was that that was pre-coaching. Yeah. And in a short space of time, things got dramatically better. Very much, yeah. You don't realise how pre-coaching it was. Uh, I, I was not expected to get in. I was in the impossibles, as we used to call them in the trial. And... Um, it was hilarious because I got swapped over. Omri Jones was the uh, flanker in the Probables. And we got swapped over on the field at half time. And Omri muttered all sorts of threats about how I shouldn't be thinking I'd be holding on to this jersey for any length of time at all. <laughs> and the second half went well. The first half had gone well. That's, uh, we had John Hickey, Tony Pender and I in the Impossibles. And Hickey was amazing. I mean, he, he just said, right, we've got only one chance, boys, you go mad. But, I mean, it was so weird. I didn't even change, obviously, in the same changing room as the rest of the probables, so the majority of the side. There was no practice session then until 
we went to Scotland. I flew up direct from Heathrow and the Welsh team went up from Cardiff, the rest of the team based in Wales. And Alan Pasque was the captain. I can remember saying to Alan, you'll have to forgive me if I call you Mr. Pasque, because he'd been my schoolboy hero, you know, three, yes. four, five years before. Yeah. <laughs> You're quite right, it was a different era. And then, of course, we had David Nash in 68, and then we had the advent yep. of, of Clive. And the team moving forward to 69 won the title. And, of course, you drew in Paris against yeah. uh, another French team that could have given you a Grand Slam then. So you'd prepared the way for 71 in 69. Yeah, the difference was we'd started to feel by 69, JPR and Mervyn Davis had come along and sort of added the extra couple of ingredients we probably need to make us into a better side. And uh, we started to think that we were sort of quite a decent outfit. But... Uh, <laughs> The French side at that time, they were our biggest rivals, there's no question. They were the, the match that you knew was going to cause you the most trouble. The biggest thing, after the 69 matches, we'd gone, of course, to Australia and New Zealand that summer, and we got firmly put back in our boxes. I mean, any thoughts that we were a half-decent side were actually uh, just blasted out of the water. We lost both tests by 19 points. And that was a lot of points to lose a test match by in those days. So I think then by 71, it, it was two things. One, Barry, Gareth, me, Merv, JPR, John Dawes had come in as the sort of fantastic captain and, of course, was um, had a big input to the coaching as well. And all of that was, there was very much a sort of huge determination that we felt if we were going to actually prove ourselves, we had to pull off the Grand Slam that year. And that then, under the guise of the Lions, as it were, we had to do something against some hemisphere opposition because yeah. we, we'd not really done a thing. First game in 71 was at home and it was against England. And I think somewhere in one of the books, a routine victory over England. Well, 22-6, <laughs> two tries from Gerald, John Bevan got one, and two conversions from yourself. Yeah, that was, well, that was the big thing. Keith Jarrett had gone north. He'd been our kicker for the previous two years. And I love winding JPR up on this, telling him there was very serious consideration to actually playing a specialist kicking fullback. And uh, he, he reacts beautifully to that one. Yeah. <laughs> and we, um, but in fact, what, what I always remember, I think it, uh, it was a press conference at the beginning of the campaign and typical Clive, the changes in the side. And uh, one of the pressmen said to Clive Rowlands, uh, Mr. Rowlands, can you tell us who's going to take the penalties? And Clive, with great aplomb, said, I can't tell you who's going to take the penalties, but I can tell you who's going to take the conversions. And it sort of set the tone for the season. Uh, and what he decided, of course, was that we would make do with what we got. Now, Barry had never kicked. When he was at Shinashley, uh, when he started, Terry Price, of course, was the great kicker there. And then he'd gone to Cardiff, and I think Alex Finlayson was settled kicker there. So he'd, he'd never had to place kick. 
and of course he became a very, very, very good kicker. And but we both kicked round the corner, and the only problem with kicking round the corner, although the the clever boys have even even that out now, is that you tend to curl the ball. In my case, with the left foot from left to right, and Barry's from right to left. Being the fly half, of course, he got all the easy ones. Yeah. But it was agreed that um, anything more than halfway out on the right, I probably had a better chance. So for that season and a little bit afterwards, that's what we did. It's interesting in that, you know, they scored 14 tries in 1969, 13 tries in 1971, but only five conversions. Now that, when you apply it to the modern game, is a pretty low conversion rate of yeah. percentage. I just wondered, did you do much practice or was it just, I'm going to give it my best shot? Well, no, I did quite a lot of practice because, I mean, one of the things was I had been through school a centre and I'd been a kicker, but I was a toe-end kicker then. And we had at London Welsh a winger, really, played a bit in the centre called Colin Gibbons, who was a decent kicker, but he sort of went off song and I said, come on, I can do better than this. And so that's when I started kicking stuff out wide from the right. And I did practice as much as I could. It's interesting, you know, we all talk about Barry John as being one of the first round-the-corner kickers. We'd had Doug Reese from Swansea just a little bit before yep. that. But we don't perhaps give you the credit you deserve for being <laughs> the round-the-corner kicker. And the reason I'm talking about this is we're going to come on to the conversion in the next game in a minute. But the ball was in safe hands at your feet, so to speak. Yeah, well, as I say, I, I kicked through school and I started kicking again at London Welsh and had a fair bit of success. Never, ever thought I'd be kicking for Wales. I, yeah. I really, really did. The real thing was that we'd have had to drop JBR and yeah. play a specialist fullback kicker. Serious um, consideration, I'm, I'm sure. No serious kicker. consideration. Um, <laughs> So you, you've beaten England, that set you up very nicely, and you, you head up to Scotland, where, you know, in 67, you come to grief. It's just one of the great games, isn't it, that one up in, um, in Scotland, 1918, obviously, to Wales. So what's the best moment for you, the try or the conversion? <laughs> well, in some ways, the try was a really, really good try. And you sort of thought, now, why do them both in the same game? <laughs> because the one detracted from the other. But no, I mean, it, it was the win. That was the, the real thing. I mean, the memories of the game were really the, always the better side. But we just kept making sort of very unlikely mistakes. Everything just went wrong as we seemed yet again to take control of the game. And we never, of course, were in control. And had Peter Brown actually kicked the conversion he should have kicked, they'd have been six points ahead instead of four points ahead, and the conversion would have been useless. They just wouldn't go away, would they? They were all no. over you like a rash. But, I mean, things like Sandy Carmichael scored a try round from the front of the lineup, and Delmy just didn't flap at the ball like that. But he did on this occasion. Yeah. And it went straight, you know, and the bounce straight into Sandy Carmichael's arms. There was only Gareth there, you know, and uh, and he just piled straight through him. And then um, the, the final try that Chris Ray scored, again, it was a comedy of errors. If we come on to, you know, four tries to two to Wales, and 
you have that line out in their 22 or 25 as it was then and Delmi Palms, I think, is, is the thing. And then all of a sudden, the back line comes into operation. I mean, did you always feel that if you have one more chance, you might get that try? Yeah, and John Dawes was fantastic about that. He actually told everybody um, a little white lie and said he'd just spoken to the referee and we got two minutes. No worries, just do your thing. Keep everybody cool. Um, and in fact, uh, it was less. <laughs> yes. But um, and typical John. I mean, first thing he said to me afterwards, he said, "Oh, if you hadn't get conversion, we'd have actually scored another try. Don't worry." <laughs> <laughs> so the ball goes from that very condensed lineout, as it was the fashion in those days. I think you're yeah. the tail gunner. It goes down the line like a bullet. The passing was fantastic. JPR comes in. Gerald's given the chance to do what he did so well, and of course. That 25-meter in-goal area, Murrayfield, must have allowed him to get a little bit closer. Yeah. Was it always going to be your conversion? Oh yeah, I think at one stage um, Barry started putting it around that I only took it because he'd been injured. Oh, but he right, was yeah. only joking. Yeah. <laughs> because, as you say, two weeks before, I'd actually kicked two from the yeah. right, and they really were from the touch line against England. Gerald was... scores. You think he should have got a bit closer to the posts. <laughs> Talk me through your mindset. Absolutely. All the things the sports psychologists now say, except we didn't have them, of course. I really did remind myself that I kicked two against England a couple of weeks before. You can do this. I knew I obviously had the range and everything else. And it was just a question of concentrating and executing everything perfectly and not trying to overkick it and things like that and, and just I mean I was aware I did sort of feel probably going to be a villain or a hero here <laughs> you've certainly dined out on that for a few occasions and yeah. what, a, what a fantastic strike interestingly you know, Neil Jenkins used to talk about having a little box that he'd put all his black thoughts into and leave it at the side of the ball when he was kicking and yeah. process becomes everything yeah so that was the thing I, I thought don't get ahead of yourself, don't do anything else. Come on, it's a straightforward kick. You can do it. Just make sure you give it your best shot. The only thing I think I was perhaps a little bit worried about was I'd mess it up completely, and that would have been ignominy. Was the feeling after seeing the flags go up better than the final whistle, or were they both just the same? Well, because of the way the game had gone, it was really a question of, you know, let's get this finished now, because yeah. you couldn't help feeling that there could possibly be one more twist. A magnificent game, great result, and of course, that puts you on for the Triple Crown then, back in Cardiff, and the Irish come, and you'll know better than everyone. If they turn up, they could be a handful. Oh no, Ireland were always a handful, and it was very much, um, as I say, that was the year where we felt it, it all came together, but it was very, very much a question of feeling as well that now we've got to prove something. If we, we really think we are the kiddies on the block, as it were, then we've got to prove it. We actually, we played some very good rugby that year. I guess the importance of Aberavon Beach at the time and the training sessions, the Avonlea with Ray Williams helping out as well. Something was growing and something was changing. Yeah, Aberavon Beach was absolute hell. We nearly always were on the beach because the playing fields actually out the back of the sports centre were so often underwater. 
course, we used to get probably 1,500, 2,000 people down there watching on a decent Sunday. And that was absolute heaven for Clive Rowlands. The routine for we, the London Welsh contingent, was we'd have played our game on the Saturday, gone to stay at John Dawes's house probably on the um, Saturday night, mm. and then piled into the Mini because he had the only decent car, and go down to Aberavon. We were up at six in the morning, down there for a 10 o'clock start, but Clive just could not resist the lure of the crowd. And at the end, I mean, the last thing we needed, we were back in, I was a school teacher, yeah. back in school on the Monday morning, and you're just getting to about four o'clock in the afternoon thinking, okay, here we go, wind down, drive back, get a stake at the lamb and flag outside Oxford on our way home and back into it. And Clive would say, right, boys, a bit of conditioning. <laughs> and you think, what? Couldn't believe. I mean, I mean, these days, sports scientists would actually ridicule it. Yeah. Because the danger of injury must have been huge in their he, terms. He did get you in good nick. I mean, that's seven tries in the two home games, 22-6 against oh. England and 23-9 against Ireland. In the end, you put Ireland to bed. Yeah, played some terrific rugby that season. We really did. It was so much that sort of building and building. And by the time we got to Ireland, you were sort of thinking, right, we can do this one, certainly. There was a huge determination. You know, we, as you said before, we had actually got a triple crown and then drew with France in 69. We were building everything towards that. Triple crown grand slam. I was suggesting to Clive and Gareth Edwards, this game really put the grand slam on the map in Wales. When you go back to the 50s, the previous time it had been triple crowns and then, oh, by the way, you're playing France, you're going to win that. This was a different situation. Yeah, but I think that was partly because of the emergence of France. When you look at France's record, I don't think people realise sort of how poor it was in the yeah. earlier days. And once they came through, was it 68 their first 68 ever was their first yeah. Grand Slam in Cardiff, right. in a game in which you played. Yeah, no, exactly. And that was my memory. Uh, and, you know, that was the emergence of France. I don't think many people get that right. And if you take 68 to 78, you have yeah. three Welsh Grand Slams and two French Grand Slams. And Absolutely. no one else in the equation. So it, you were the two dominant forces. Yeah, yeah, very much. So you go to Stamford. We were very conscious of that too. We were very yeah. conscious of the fact that our biggest rivalry really, well, I never lost to England. Edwards never lost to England in, what was it, 12 yes. or 11 seasons or whatever. JPR never lost by a bit of sleight of hand. He retired for the one they went wrong on, yeah. and then came back again, which was very clever. Stade Colomb, what sort of ground was that? You know, the old 1924 Olympic venue. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a real old lady, wasn't it? Oh, it was, it was amazing. I mean, the thing I remember most about it was you actually emerged onto the pitch from an underground tunnel. So you went out underneath. It wasn't just like running up the tunnel onto the no. millennium or any of that. It, it was actually a real tunnel. You were yes. right underneath yeah. and you sort of came out into the sunlight. It was incredible. Very intimidating 
because it was very different. I looked at the film on, on YouTube the other day and there's two points that stuck in my mind. The Benoit Doga try should never have been awarded. <laughs> he lost the ball over the line and Denzel Williams is remonstrating with the referee. And then secondly, there's a great moment at the end where John Dawes is being carried off on the shoulders of Arthur Lewis and Gareth Edwards and he's got the ball up his jumper. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it, just, it just seemed to me that that sort of little trophy of the game was what in your era you might have been able to have. You had, no, you had no medal, you had no bonus, no. you had no fanfare, you had nothing. And it was like no, <laughs> well, no, I, no fanfare. No, I would half bet some uh, official tried to get the ball back off him too. <laughs> Probably, so yes. There was no chance. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, can, I can remember getting told off in Cardiff, not that match, but for grabbing a ball. It was wag finger, no, you give that back. It's not yeah. yours. <laughs> but it was, it was a very tight game, but a very high-quality game. Mm. Well, I'd say really absolutely the Scotland game, obviously, that game and the third Lions test in New Zealand that summer would go down probably as my three favourite games. And that one was all I remember was tackling my heart out. For the first 20 minutes, I think we really felt that they were going to overrun us. There was the classic JPR shoulder charge into Dutch uh, Bugarel, and then the interception. And yes. once we weathered that, we gradually got more and more control. By the end, you know, we really felt we know. And that sort of evolution of the game was very, very special. And amazing that you went through that season using only 16 players. Ian Hall yeah. came in when Arthur Lewis was injured. And that's testimony to the way you played and the, and the fact that you were, you, you were so tight as a group. And then so many of you went on with the Lions. Mm. So Clive knew what he was talking about all the time when he put us through the agony sessions uh, on the beach at our Abbott. How did it make you feel doing the clean sweep? What did Grand Slam mean to John Taylor? Oh, I mean, it was very much the culmination of what you sort of felt we really had to prove ourselves if we wanted to consider ourselves um, to be right up there with some of the great Welsh sides. A triple crown is all we'd had until then. But it was an enormous fun time to be playing rugby. You know, when you're part of a good side and you're playing a very attractive style of rugby, um, which you were always going to get with the, you know, the John Dawes approach. I mean, coaching-wise, it was hilarious because, you know, Clive's, it was all about... Um, Alon and Ticker, yeah, well, same thing. Yeah. But um, all I can remember him saying, and, and, and he was very much, a, you know, a set piece, rehearse those, get everything in place. But then the actual way we were going to play when we were on the field was absolutely in the hands of the captain and, and the team. Clive's contribution to that was immense. I always remember we had a team talk in Cardiff, in the Angel, went into his room, he had this huge sort of presence and, and he'd say, right, boys, you know, we've got to build this. He had these sort of key things he would do. And if he said, what are we going to do? You had to yell, win, back at him. And I always remember Delmi, who was a quiet sort of character. 
going, win. I said, what? You'll never win the way that. And eventually he got the win that he wanted out of Delmi. And then it went to John Lloyd, who by this time was absolutely wound up. John Lloyd had got this nickname of Mr. Greedy because he apparently had a two kilo steak in Argentina on the tour there in 68. Clive said, you know, then it came on to John. I said, what are you going to do? Mr. Greedy turned around and said, eat them. <laughs> <laughs> Very appropriate. Well, it was the start of what we call the second golden era. And we obviously went on to, you could have had another one the next year, but for the opt out of the Island game yeah. and then 76 and 78. And I guess we're in another golden era at the moment. Yes. I, I mean, I think what we've done this season has been fantastic because if you like, I would put this side very best as being sort of where we were in 1969. Different scenarios in that this side's a bit older. Considering the regions haven't exactly been setting the world alight, all credit to uh, Wayne Pivak and the team. And Alan Wynne is a, an amazing character. He really is. And to get it all together and be able to come out of that sort of situation and put together performances like they have done, I think sensational. And, and you know, a couple of lovely little bonuses. Reese Samet, fantastic to see a youngster who was just not on the radar, really, yeah. come through and, and do that. And huge credit to them. I think they've done wonderfully well this season. It's incredible, John, that 50 years on, we can say, hang on, Alan Wynne-Jones, Gareth Edwards. We can say Talupe Falata, Mervyn Davis. Or we could say Lee Halfpenny, JPR. We've got some serious players again. Yeah. That's marvellous. It's a lovely recollection. And tip a glass to say, 50 years, congratulations. And the rest, as they say, is rugby history. Fascinating reminders of a great time from former Wales flanker John Taylor. Much more to look forward to in next week's Welsh Rugby Union podcast. But until then, goodbye.